Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I know it's been a while since our last episode, so I wanted to give you guys a quick update on what's been going on on my side. I've been busy setting up my career coaching business and I'm now full-time doing this. How crazy is that? So if you guys are feeling unhappy about your corporate job and don't know what else you would want to do with your career, well, my one-on-one career coaching business is designed to help you pivot from a perfect on paper job into a perfect for you career. So if you are looking for some help yourself, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or at any of my social media links in the show notes to today's episode. All right. So if you're new here, I'm your host, Jennifer Ong. And in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nellie Wartoft, who's the founder of Tiger Hall. What is Tiger Hall? Well, it is a social learning platform that provides bite-sized, real-world, actionable insights from leaders and subject matter experts in the corporate world. Before founding her own company, Nellie actually worked at the recruitment company, Michael Page. So for today's episode, I've actually split it into two parts because Nellie had so many amazing, interesting stories to share. And so part one is going to be a deep dive into her successful fundraising journey and a lot of details around how she managed to get Sequoia on her cap table. And part two next week is going to be on Nellie's career journey all the way from when she decided to move from Sweden to Singapore and how she managed to build Tiger Hall and the successes she's seen today. All right, I'll hand over to Nellie now to share her amazing story. Um, so welcome, Nellie. Super excited to have you on the podcast today. And uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Um, so I wanted to just, you know, rewind all the way back to the early days of your career. Um, and actually, even before that, right, when you went to school. So I know that you're actually Swedish. And I did a bit of research about you and uh, found out you actually went to university in Australia and did a bit of a stint in Korea as well. So kind of walk us through that. I feel like that's probably not the most traditional um, education. Uh, and uh, how did you pick these uh, these countries? Yeah. And the university was in Singapore. It's an Australian university that is in Singapore. So ah. this is where I ended up doing university. Okay. And I was, uh, I've been obsessed with Asia since I was 12, 13 years old and uh, did every school project on like Asian history, culture and Lee Kuan Yew and Singapore and got to a point where my teachers were like, you can't do anything more in Asia now. <laughs> like this is enough. You have to start picking other topics. So I was very certain that I wanted to move to Asia and I wanted to live in the capital of Asia. And I was like, is the capital of Asia Hong Kong? Is it Singapore? And I mean, now it's pretty clear it's Singapore. But at that point, it was still a very um, even points between them. But what made me choose Singapore was one, I felt it was a mix of all cultures. Like it's such a nice, diverse population in Singapore with cultures from all over Asia. Um, the sunshine helped. I hate the Swedish winters and the <laughs> snow and ice and darkness. So sunshine definitely helped. Um, and uh, then I started searching for universities and um, and what I could, could do here. And I was already running a small company in Sweden at that time. So I started a 
small company that taught um, senior citizens digital literacy. So how to use a smartphone, how to use Hotmail, how to use the internet. And then that kind of grew into companies asking me, hey, can you build our social media? Can you do our Facebook page? And this was super, super early. So my skills are not relevant at all now, like 15 years later. Um, but at that point it was. So, um, so I started working with companies and that was the business that I also brought to Singapore. Um, so I did university here and um, and did my business and a few internships and so on. So that's how I ended up in, in Singapore. And the exchange was South Korea. So I spent eight, nine months in South Korea and doing my exchange. Actually, my last semester uh, was in South Korea and absolutely loved it. That's so fascinating. And so you talked a little bit about the business that you started even before university. So do you feel like you always had kind of like a an entrepreneur entrepreneurial bug in 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 you? I think so. I think so. I, I really like the like I like to win. Like I'm very competitive and I like to keep points and keep scores and measuring things. And uh even when I was I think it was like six, seven, I used to do these lemonade stands. And I was like picking places in my city back in Sweden that was where all the bikers uh, turning by, where the runners coming, and like they probably need lemonade because they would be thirsty when they go biking. <laughs> that was my market uh, assessment when I was seven, eight. And then I was like doing homemade lemonade with lemon and all of these. And then I went out and I sold it for 20 cents per glass. Um, and uh, so I, I, that started pretty early. I also had a period where I was finding the best stones and selling stones to my family and like selling stones to my grandmother, which is like perfectly boring gray stones. And I started doing that. And then I started working very early when I was 12 and started working at McDonald's when I was 15. So I've always been into work and sales and delivering products in that sense i think it's like yeah i do think it's an early bug like i don't know where it came from but i've always been very very certain that i want to start a company mm, that's amazing um so i'm gonna fast forward a little bit when you graduated what were you thinking in terms of your career path were you like okay i'm gonna go out and build a business now no, so I was very much, um, I wanted to learn as much as I could. I, kn I knew that I wanted to start a company eventually, but initially I wanted to just learn as much as I could and get as much understanding for how the world works. Um, so I wanted to go into corporate or a large company and I really, really wanted a management trainee role or a management associate role to get exposure. Like I'm a generalist, so I wanted to get exposure and like not be pigeonholed or deep dive into a certain area but rather stay, stay a generalist. Um, so after I graduated, when I was about to graduate, it was about like three, four months before graduation, I started applying for jobs, um, applied for all the management associate roles, the management trainee and like Swedish companies, Singaporean companies, global companies, like everything and applied for consulting roles um, and anything that would like teach me more business and uh, didn't get a single response, didn't get a single interview. I think I applied to close to 600 it was like 578 or something wow. and close to 600 applications later and uh, I just didn't have a single interview so and that's also because I did go to a crap university like that's not a brand name university it's not a university companies want to hire from and that really stood out so so didn't get a single interview and um, and then when I was looking at okay like now what should I do? I did have an offer from Michael Page, which is the company that I did an internship with during university. 
absolutely loved the internship, absolutely loved recruitment, but I was still a little bit like, hmm, like, let me see if I can get like a management associate or like a, like a, a that kind of role that I was initially looking for. Um, but I had the offer to come back to Singapore or to go to Hong Kong with Page Group or stay in London. And uh, at the end, like I didn't have any other options. So I was down to this one option. I was like, okay, let's 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 do it then. And moved back to Singapore, started in recruitment. And in hindsight, it's the best thing that could ever happen. Like one, I really enjoyed it. I had so much fun, great company to work for, great colleagues, so much fun throughout the four years I was there. And two, most of all, I learned all the skills that you need to know when you build your own business. Because when you're in recruitment, it's, it's pretty much like build, like building and running your own business. Um, so you have your, what they call desk, um, that is basically your own profit and loss. And you need to bring in a certain amount of revenue every month. And if you don't do that, then things happen. And uh, then you start building a team and uh, then you have a bigger PNL. And what you learn in recruitment is, of course, recruitment, which is a huge part of building a business. Like last year for Tagwell alone, I hired 32 people. So every second week we have someone new starting, someone new closing, and that's actually more than I hired when I was a full-time recruiter. So I spend more time on recruitment now as a business owner than I did when I was a full-time recruiter. Mm -hmm. So learning recruitment is like a huge thing. And I know fellow founders who think recruitment is a massive pain and they spend so much on recruitment firms to help them. And it's, it's hard to interview and find the right talent. And it's hard to know what you should look for in a resume and what you should go on in the interview. So I'm super grateful I learned that. And then, of course, you also learn sales. It's not easy to get the jobs to actually recruit for someone. So you need to sell to these senior business leaders who are recruiting that, hey, I can do this job for you and like get the get the jobs in. So a lot of sales. And then you learn everything around forecasting, revenue management, profitability, planning for the quarter, like all of those things. And then, of course, team management. So when I left Michael Page, I had a team of sales and marketing consultants. and um, and I, I knew how to run a team and how to be a leader. So a lot of a lot of my first time management skills and leadership skills came out of that as well. Of course, I had the background from McDonald's that was really helpful because I was leading a team there as well. Um, but in this kind of full time corporate setting, sales, delivering profitability, leading a team in that environment is still quite different. So, um, so it was the best job I could pick. Um, so, so that's where I ended up and started in recruitment and did really well, was the top biller, won a bunch of awards and uh, had a really good time. That's amazing. And I think you almost got that management training experience that you wanted, even though, you know, exactly. it wasn't what you expected going in, you actually got maybe even a better training than um, what you would have gotten from a management training type of job. Yeah. Um, even more so sure. Because like in the management associate management trainee job, like you, you're still fairly pigeonholed depending on the size of the company. And you're still fairly handheld. Like what I've heard from people who've been through these programs, like you're still pretty much like you have a design program. There are people who like guide you, like recruitment is like drop in the ocean, go make money. There you go. <laughs> uh, that kind of exposure, I think, was a lot more helpful. That's amazing. Um, so when did you feel was the right time for you to move on? I guess as you were working at Michael Page, did you set some sort of a timeline for yourself around like how long I'm going to learn from a corporate before I go start my own company? Yeah, so I was uh, I have this goal that I still wanted to start my own business. And I knew that you need capital to start your own business. It's not 
cheap um even just starting it like setting up the entity and doing the like buying a website domain like even that like i mean everything costs money so you need some money to start it and uh so i wanted to save up until i had two hundred thousand dollars singapore dollars and then put half of that into a business and half of that keeping that as savings so so that's what i did so so worked until i had 200k in my account so that was about three four years later um, and then I decided to to start a business with those um, with with that capital. And at that point, I was like, I don't have knowledge in raising capital, raising funding. Um, I don't have knowledge in building tech and like how do you manage like a tech building process. So I worked with a co-founder, um, a Singaporean guy, that we built a, a small business together. And uh, it was only for about a year or so. So it was more like we raised raised a bit of capital and built a product and got to launch and so on but there were many things that didn't work out in the business model there were many things that didn't work out in the way that we wanted to run the company how we wanted to run the company and he ended up moving overseas and i wanted to stay in singapore and so it was just like after a year we're like let's go our separate ways um and that's when i started tiger hole so so i was very much like this is the kind of business that I want to run and what I want to do and what I want to build. Um, so after a year of having that, what I call like the practice period and, and learning a lot of those skills I thought I didn't have, um, that's when I decided to launch Tiger Hall. And that was in May 2018 that I incorporated Tiger Hall. Mm. Did you have an idea about what you wanted to start when you were at Michael Page? Or did you then take some time off to figure out what was the next company going to be about? So I already had an idea of which area I wanted it to be in. Um, so I definitely wanted to be in education um, and like how to how people grow, how people get ahead. I definitely wanted to be about social mobility. So I used to say that I'm very passionate about education, but then I realized that's not actually true. What I'm passionate about is social mobility and the role that education has in social mobility. So my core purpose of my life is how do we ensure that your destiny your destiny is not determined by who your parents are that is the the main goal of my life to make sure that that's reduced and that regardless of who you're born to regardless of your background and circumstances you can achieve your life goals you can do anything you want to do and make the world more meritocratic so um so i knew that i wanted to do something in that area because that's what i find by far the most meaningful um, and something that I'm deeply passionate about. So it was in that area, um, but in terms of like, there's no market for like, hey, I drive social mobility, like pay me money, like that, that there's no business market for that. So it needs to be developed and voiced in another way. So actually the way we started, and this came from my experience in recruitment. So I got the idea while I was in recruitment. And the reason or how I got the idea was, a lot of my candidates that I was speaking to, they were asking me all these questions around, how do I get my next role? How do I launch this new market? How do I get visibility for my boss? Like, what should I think about here? And they were all in this career transitioning point in their lives, right? So they were all having these big questions and thinking about how do they get ahead and how do they move forward in their careers. And I was like, I'm just a lowly recruiter. I don't know the answers to these questions. And I'm like 22 years old. Like, what do I know? And But I realized that the clients that I recruited for, they actually had these answers. So when I was spending time with the senior leaders that I recruited for, I realized that I learned a lot more from them in a coffee chat than I did in my entire university education. 
So that's when I started thinking, hang on, like, why are we just connecting these people for job opportunities and job interviews? We could actually connect them for learning as well, because there's so much you can learn. If you're an up and coming marketing manager, there's so much you can learn from a global CMO. And that goes for every single field, right? So, I mean, people call this mentoring and like a little bit in that space of mentoring, but I think that mentoring is is very like not scalable and it's very hard to actually execute well. There are great mentoring programs out there, but I think it's it's hard to have one mentor. Like I have many mentors, for example, like you can't just have one because that's very, very limiting. And then most of all, it's very time consuming for both parties, like very time consuming for the executive being the mentor, very time consuming for the person taking up the mentorship. Like if you're going to sit down an hour of your time and it's just one to one, I was thinking this could be done in a much more scalable and efficient way where you could actually reach more people. Because the everyone who's in these like career asking journeys, mostly they ask they ask the same things. Everyone has the same questions. And then most leaders give the same answers. So if you're a mentor, if you're a CEO and you're mentoring five people, you end up giving out the same advice over and over and over again because you have these things that you've learned in your career that you believe in. And that's the advice that you give to younger folks or people that you're mentoring. So I was like, this is pretty repetitive while not being scalable. Like that doesn't make any sense. So I was thinking, can we learn from senior leaders in a much more scalable format? And then looking around me, everyone was on Instagram, Clubhouse, Twitter, Spotify, WhatsApp. Like I was like, why isn't enterprise learning or like the way that we learn more like that? Why can't we learn from senior leaders in those formats? Because if you think of like, Instagram, right? Like all the influencers that people are following and like you follow someone, you see their content, you learn from that, like whether you want or not, you end up learning from TikTok and these places as well, right? So it's like, why can't learning be like that? Why can't you learn from senior leaders and then get that knowledge 24 seven, wherever you are, straight from your mobile phone in formats that are actually much more user-friendly and consumer-friendly than watching these like 27 hours of video courses that most corporate learning is that everyone just hates and no one wants to sit through. So, so it was those two ideas that I wanted to, to combine and have like, can we have a scalable technology platform where you can learn from senior leaders in these very consumerized, easy to access formats and kind of bridge that gap between like the more senior generation's knowledge and the younger generation's consumption preferences. Mm. Um, so that, that was the original idea. So when we launched in 2019, it was all consumer. So it was all B2C, consumer platform. We had individual users, primarily Singapore was our market. And then when we noticed how much time people spend on the platform, like up until today, people spend one to one and a half hour per week on the platform, which is like unheard of in learning. And when we saw that, that's when we started going to enterprises and say like, hey, we we know that you have this problem. We know that your learning platform sucks. Why don't you try Tiger Hall instead? So, mm-hmm. so it kind of developed step by step. But the original idea I got from recruitment, yes. Wow, amazing. Um, and that And that's so cool. Um, to see how that kind of all these ideas can all spark um, while you're at the corporate job and see how they can then translate into, into a business. I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know about my career coaching program that's designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing it in your dream career. So if you're feeling unfulfilled, despite having that perfect, prestigious, high-paying job, 
or if you're someone who's great at chasing and acing other people's dreams, but have no idea what your own dreams and goals are, well, today you're in luck. I'm sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion and get career clarity. If that sounds like something you would want, check out today's show notes to download the free guide now. All right, back to the episode. When you first started out Tiger Hall, how did you know what you needed to do? Did I know what to do? No, absolutely not. Like, no, no clue what to do. And I, and, I, and I still don't know what to do. Like, many of the problems that we're facing today, I have no idea how to solve them. <laughs> I keep asking people, talking to people. Like, my way of solving problems have always been reaching out to someone or someone who might know someone and voicing my problems. Like, when I meet with our investors or our customers or employees, like, I just talk about our problems and like how can we solve them and speaking with with people who I think might might know the answer and I think that also probably comes a little bit from recruitment because if you don't know what to do like reach out to someone reach out to a client reach out to a candidate like try and match make like speak to people so um so no I didn't know what to do and uh I think that's where a lot of people are limiting themselves and thinking that I shouldn't do this or I can't do this because I don't know what to do right now and I think that's the wrong way to think about it because you will figure it out as you go. So a belief in your ability to figure things out, I think is incredibly key and everyone will figure it out. Like, like when you get into the role and you start doing it, you will learn things bit by bit that will take you on that right path. And yes, there's a lot of thinking, analysis, talking to people, looking at the data, understanding, and, and that's how you learn, right? So running a business is like constantly learning, like unlearning, relearning, learning again, and like constantly challenging and questioning yourself. And the way I think people do this mistake when they think they need a business plan, like I get a lot of those questions like, oh, like, can you look at my business plan? Or like, what was your business plan? I was like, you don't need a business plan. Like, this is what is limiting people. Don't do a business plan. That is yes. probably the worst thing you can do. <laughs> then like you said first you try and sit like socrates on your stone and be like oh, what should i do and just in your own isolation develop a strategy plan and i don't think that works like up until today the way i develop strategies i talk to our customers i talk to our employees i talk to people in the ecosystem that's how i get the input for our strategy i don't sit on my own and think like oh like finger in the air which wind is the which way is the wind blowing and let me do this strategy like that's not how it works so i think many people are stuck with this i need a business plan and then they spend so much time trying to figure out this business plan instead of just get started just do it just get started Quit your job, start a company, do it now, and then you'll figure it out. Because everything you need to learn, you will learn from your customers. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to, I mean, our like B2C, like I learned so much from the users that we had mm -hmm. um, in those early days and how we should develop the product, what was important to them, why they like Tiger Hall. And then when we started working with enterprises, learned so much from them into like, what are their problems? What are their needs? How can we solve for them? Like everything you will learn as you figure out. Mm -hmm. And we've been like, pivoting both from like B2C to B2B. Um, we've been now like, our biggest market now is the US. So we've been refocusing from Asia to the US market. So you end up changing a lot. Like four years ago, there is no way on earth I could say and sit, I can sit and say that in four years, we'll be doing enterprise sales in the US. Like, I, I couldn't say that. At that point, I was like, we're going to be a B2C app in India. And then we end up being a B2B SaaS platform for the US market. So things will change all the time. 
And I think that's where I see people getting caught up in their own, like, oh, I need to plan everything. I need to have everything ready. Like when I started, I had no capital. So I had lost all my money in the previous startup, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and hadn't paid myself much of a salary. So I was down to like, I put $8,000 into Tiger Hall. That, that's what I was down to. So I didn't have capital. I did not have any capital commitments. I hadn't raised around anything like that. So it was me and my $8,000 going to a corp sec and getting an incorporation done. And that was it. I didn't even have a name. At that point, it was called Level. So yeah. <laughs> the first name was just Level. And then I realized what bad SEO it is to be called Level. <laughs> something more unique and something that more suits our brand and what we want to do. So after like 500 iterations two months later I bought the domain tigerhole.com for four thousand dollars oh wow oh my god okay so that was like half of the amount of money already yeah, exactly. <laughs> like half of my money I spent on buying this domain so that's what <laughs> when you need you do need a little bit of capital you don't need a business plan but you do need a little bit of capital like just incorporation is like a few thousand dollars yeah. is usually a few thousand dollars like yeah. it quickly starts to run away like any legal cost you have to set up and stuff like that um, and that's also why I raised the round very early so we incorporated in May and I raised a, what they call like a pre, pre-seed or like early friends and family round, but there were no friends and family involved um, over about a million dollars two months after I had incorporated. So that, that got us started to build a product and build a business. That's amazing. And tell us a little bit about where you went to fundraise this um, uh, uh, friends and family round, because a million dollars is a pretty substantial amount to get started with in a, in a friends and family round. A good thumb rule in fundraising is always raise twice as much as you think you need and count that it will run a, run out fast as fast, try, twice as fast as you think it will. Mm-hmm. So so twice the amount of money in, in half the amount of time, pretty much. Um, so that was the mindset I was in. And also, most importantly, it takes as much work to raise 100K as to raise a million dollars. And similarly, it takes as much work to raise $2 million as to raise $20 million. So you might as well go out and, and try and raise as much as you can. And, and that obviously massively helped the business. But the way I was fundraising was very similar to how I solved problems. I spoke with everyone. I spoke with all the people I knew. I took up a lot of like event hosting roles so I could meet as many people as possible. And this is a key thing in networking that I highly recommend is take the host role. That's the best way to network. So don't go out networking in like just joining networking events and go around talking to everyone in the room. Be the host because then you automatically get to speak with everyone and you're in a much better power position than if you just come around and lurk around the corners and try and walk up to everyone. So I took a lot of host roles. And one of the host roles I took was being the ambassador of a small world in Singapore, this like Swiss private network for um, global citizen. Um, So I took up the host role, I hosted an event for them. And during this event, I told everyone I'm fundraising and fundraising and fundraising <laughs> in a more classy way. Like, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm launching this business. I'm right now racing around, like telling everyone about it. And it was one of the people that came to that a small world networking event that was like, oh, you're racing in what, like your digital education. It's like, yeah, it's a digital ed tech platform uh, was what I called it back then. And uh, And I'm racing around right now. We're just launching. We're getting started. And this guy was an investment banker with a client in the US who was looking to diversify and invest in ed tech in Asia. 
Wow. <laughs> perfect, perfect match. And I think it's very true what they say that the harder you work, the luckier you get, because this is extremely lucky to bump yeah. into a person that has exactly that client looking to invest in exactly what I'm building. Yeah. But I have to say that, yes, that part was luck, but it was also luck. And I got to that point because I spoke to 3000 people like at this in the same month that I did all of these networking events. This was May, June 2018. That same month, I had a list of 700 people in an Excel sheet that I had meetings with, that it WhatsApp calls, Zoom calls. I spoke with everyone. I like I was just out there meeting as many people as possible. So this was just one of them. Like if I had only done this event and oh wow, like my funding comes out of there, I would say that's very lucky. But considering <laughs> I spent a month, like 24 hours a day networking, I think it was a product coming out of that. So he was like, this client is looking for digital tech in Asia. And I was like, okay, that's very interesting. He was like, can you send me some more materials? I sent in my, like now when I look at it, very, very crap deck. And uh, he said like, this is very interesting. And then a week or so later, or maybe just a few days, he called like, oh, you know, like my client is in town. Like, would you like to meet him? Could you be here in an hour? And I was sitting at home in my sofa doing my like outreach, emailing people, networking. And he was like, can you be here in an hour? And his office is in Telokaya. I was like, I'm coming. <laughs> and then I went there and I sat and pitched my business. It was just me and a PowerPoint deck. So I was just telling him about what I wanted to do, what the idea was, what I wanted to oh, build. So nothing was built yet at that point. Nothing was built. So it was just a presentation. It was just a presentation. Wow, that's incredible. Okay. So me and a PowerPoint deck. So it's the most valuable, it's a shit PowerPoint deck, but it's the most <laughs> valuable PowerPoint deck I've ever made. Damn. So, uh, so it was just me and a PowerPoint deck. And after I've done my pitch, walked through the vision, the concept, what I wanted to build, the market for this and so on, that's when he was like, come work for us. And I was like, no, I'm not going to work for you. I'm going to build this business. If you don't want to invest, you go back to the US and we, we don't meet again. But if you want to invest, this is what's going to happen. And uh, I think he's very, he's made his money back many times over in his time investment. So he's very happy now. Um, but that was a very funny first interaction. And I was just like, I'm not going to work for you. And he really wanted me to just join his company. Interesting. Uh, Why was that such a sure decision for you? Like, did it, it just never occurred to you? You would have never, ever considered working for someone else on this idea no no I wouldn't what, what was the thinking behind that I knew that I mean one he's not the only one I can raise capital from like it's not like live or die with this meeting right um if he would say no I would have had many other options um that I could speak with as well so I would have continued doing what I did with the networking and so on but also like I was very certain that I, I really want to build my own business. Like that is what I want to do in life. And I've known that since I was 12, 13 years old. And I have a huge need for achievement and being limitless. And that's one of the things I really didn't like with working in, in corporate recruitment and being part of a large global organization is that you're so limited in what you can do and your growth and what you can experiment with. It's like you have to somewhat stay in track. And even if you smash your targets, you're not going to be promoted earlier. You're going to follow this career development plan they've set out. And we want to see another six months of you being visible in the office and all of that bullshit. I'm like, this is limiting. So I was very clear that I wanted to be limitless and I wanted to 
have no limits to how much I could grow, how much I could do, how much I could take on, how much I could experiment with. So that's the core reason I wanted to build my own. And I have a high need for independence and like having that freedom to do what I want to do. And I think that's also why I left home and moved to Singapore when I was 18, right? Like I'm extremely independent. Um, so, so that was why I was like super certain that I definitely want to, to start this own company. I'm not going to take an employment. And now I know that I will probably never in my life have an employment again. I think I'm going to run businesses for the rest of my life. Wow, that's amazing. So back to this conversation with this guy who you very quickly turned down in terms of uh, getting you know, uh, his offer to work for him. Um, and But I guess the outcome was you did get an investment from him into yeah. your, into your right. company. Was it larger than what you had expected? Or it was it was just like a win and then you went out and you know, had to hustle for the remaining amount. So he did the full million dollars. Oh, he did. Oh, that's, yeah. that's incredible. Wow. <laughs> million dollars investment. Actually, how did you learn how to fundraise? For example, how did you know you needed a million dollars? That's a good question. So I started by looking at what are the valuations that startups raise at pre-launch? So what is a normal stealth valuation? And uh, at that point, it was around uh, like stealth, pre-seed, like early stage was around like five, $5 million in valuation. Like that's what I got for my, again, speaking with people, asking a bunch of questions and my research. So valuation of $5 million. And then I was like, how much of the company am I willing to give away? Because you get diluted when you raise capital, right? And I was like, to get someone in, I can give away 20% of the company. So I would still own 80% and the investor would own 20. I think that's that's fair for the risk they're taking and also the risk I'm taking, of course, with, with my life and so on. Um, so that's how I arrived at the, at the million dollar number mm-hmm. because the money that you need, like, yes, you can say that I need X amount of money. And I mean, of course, now in the stage where now it's much more like, how much money do we need to get to a certain milestone? This is what I want to invest in sales and marketing and product and engineering to get to the next X million dollars of revenue. So now it's a lot more numbers that are playing into it. But at that early stage, like, I mean, you have nothing. And investors are going to invest because of you. It's 100% the founder in seed. So usually pre-seed, seed, like before series A, it's pretty much 100% the founder or the founding team. And then at Series A, it's more about product market fit. Like, do you have customers? Or are they happy? Or are they paying? Or do you have a good, like sometimes unit economics? Like, does this business actually make sense? And then Series B is more, do you have the growth? Like, then it's more like, what we call like private equity numbers. Like, do you have the growth? Do you have the gross margins? Um, do you have the economics to scale this up to a huge business and so on? But at the seed stage, it's like 100% the founder. So you can't really have any numbers to tie a valuation to, which is why valuations also tend to be like, yeah, like four or five, six million, like whatever is like you agree with the investor, right? So, so that's what, what we did. And this investor, the first one that came in, he's a CFO. So his background is like all CFOs. So he was like really struggling. <laughs> How do we evaluate like and value a air castle for like five million dollars? <laughs> like nothing there. Like there's no discounted cash flow model. Yeah. <laughs> like, How does this work? Yeah. So, uh, so it's more of a negotiation um, on the valuation. But I used I used comparables and what was like the most common in the market, and I raised based on that. Uh, but you don't really know like how far is this money going to reach and how much can I do with it? Because 
it's still so many things that I need to figure out. Like I had a huge advantage in that I knew salary brackets for different roles, given my background in recruitment. So I knew what I had to pay for talent in different teams, different levels. Um, but I didn't know, like, I didn't know how much it cost to build an app. And I didn't know how long time it would take to build an app because the app was not, we hadn't designed the specs, right? And you can't estimate engineering time and cost before you know exactly what you're going to build and what the functionality is going to be. And I didn't have that because I hadn't gotten a software development agency because I didn't have the capital to engage them. So it, it's still a lot of unknowns. Um, so I would say just race as much as you can. That is mm. the best advice I can give. Race as much as you can, and then you will figure it out. Mm. That's incredible because I think most people in the seed round or not seed round, this, this like family and friends round only raise like a few hundred K usually, right? It's usually like less than 500k is what I I generally have have seen right yeah and I think the downside of I mean I understand that I mean it's it's also a privilege to be able to raise capital not everyone can but I think the downside of only raising 100 200k is that then you get under more pressure to prove something to get your next round even though that capital will not stretch very far mm -hmm. whereas a million dollars stretched us all the way to launch we got our first users like we had after i did the the next round six months after launch so we had six months of user feedback user love traction data mm -hmm. all of those things that we could then raise the next round mm -hmm. and that was the sequoia search round so mm -hmm. we had that early customer love and all of those areas mm -hmm. so i think if you raise 100k it's very hard to even get to a meaningful point where you can raise your next round mm, got it got it got it i guess a lot of the times the advice you get as a startup founder is you should also validate the solution to your problem uh because the problem while the problem might be validated how you create the solution may not actually solve the problem. So how mm. did you convince the investor? And I think that that's usually the questions that investors um, give to, to startups is how do I know that what you're creating and the money I'm putting behind your solution is going to actually solve this problem? You won't know that. And the until you built it. Yeah, so even so until the market. So, so that, that's just the and that's the risk investors take, right? And if you're not willing to take that risk, you're not an early stage investor. Then you're a late stage private equity investor if you want to see that the solution works. So so no, like you don't know that. You have a thesis, and of course, a big part of the fundraise is convincing people that this is the way to solve the problem. Because many people would agree that the problem existed. And I, I've met many investors like this as well. And you disagree on thesis and so on, and they would agree, yes, this is a problem, but I don't think this is the solution. So that also happens. So a big part of your fundraising job is convincing investors that this is actually the solution to this big problem. And these are the proof points as to why. So in our case, it was mid-level managers don't have time. So that means one-to-one -one mentorship, long hours, taking courses outside of work, like that was all out but they spend three hours a day on social media, <laughs> their smartphones. So they do have time. So how can we fit learning into that? And two, they don't have access to these senior leaders, but they want to, and they can get access to them through these podcasts and power reads and digital formats. So that's the way that I positioned it. And uh, like the problem, if the problem is that someone doesn't have time, but they actually do spend time somewhere else and that's where you can then fit in the time. Like that's an example of how that could be positioned. Mm. I think that's still so amazing that you managed to convince them um, and got the money in before even any form of an MVP. 
Because I feel like that's usually how people approach it. They're like, I'm going to build an MVP and then I'm going to go out and fundraise uh, so that there's some sort of traction, some sort of numbers. You know, I have some percentages or whatever <laughs> to, to showcase. Um, so I think that that's really incredible that you manage you manage to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think many people are, I think it's harder to do that because then you get more questions, right? Like then you need to prove more. It's actually easier to race before you have an MVP in that sense. Because then it's more about your, you can, you can play more on vision and what you want to do and the big picture. And if you already have an MVP, then it's likely that people are going to be like pointing more to like, oh, the users and I want to talk to them as well. So ideally you want to buy yourself a little bit more time before you get to those proof points. And if I were to get you to think back on those conversations that you had, right, because I think you probably have like a figured out some sort of formula to to fundraising what would you say is kind of like your secret sauce or something that you think really helped you succeed in in the fundraising space i think one thing that and this is what i've heard from investors as well who have invested in tiger hall and investors who haven't invested in tiger hall is that i'm very very good with answering questions i'm very good with answering questions about any part of the business. And I think, I mean, much of this is confidence. Like I sound confident also when I answer it, even if I don't know the answer, I can give an answer that says like, I don't know that, but I will figure it out. And it will sound like I will figure it out. Even if I say, I actually don't know. So answering questions is a huge part of it. And also I know the business so well, like that's a that's an answer I've been uh, getting as well from investors that any question they ask me, I have thought about it. Like I know the numbers off the top of my head. I have thought about the uh, the answer to questions ahead. Like answering questions, I think is one of my key strengths in fundraising. Um, I think there are definitely so many founders that do much better decks than I do, that do much better storytelling than I do. Um, and that, those are things that I want to improve on. But I think this, the way I know the business in so much detail and can answer any question and don't get flustered when I get, questions about anything high and low and I'm just like calm and confident and can reply with a good logical solid answer I think that builds a lot of trust and they then understand that okay like she actually knows her business and she knows what she's talking about and trust is of course a huge thing and then what I've started doing lately which which actually help with our series a and that I think will help with our series b and consistent runs as well is I now spend time actually every week I build relationships with investors so I don't do any road shows anymore like our seed round was a road show and part of the series a was a little bit of a road show like where you reach out to a lot of investors and you pitch your business and your idea and like the traction and all of that like similar to what I did the first time like for that like friends and family round um it's just like talking to a lot of people now I do all of that before so by the time we get to fundraise all the investors that I'm interested in that I would like to partner with and, and have on our cap table and as part of our growth, they already know me, they know the business, they know Tiger Hall, they know which customers we're working with, like they already have the ins and outs of the business. So then it comes to a point where just like, this is what what we what we want to do forward and this is the round and then you can close it pretty quickly. So that actually happened with our Series A. So with our Series A, the the investor who led that was someone that I had met three years earlier, no, two years earlier, sorry. So 2019, and we did our Series A in 2021. She passed on our seed round because she wanted to see ABC proof points. 
And she thought like, this is, this is not going to work because they don't have ABC. And then two years later, I had remained in touch with her. We had continued to catch up and keep relationships. And we had proven all of those points that we could do A, B, and C, and we had succeeded in all of that. And then it was a lot more confidence for her to actually lead our Series A as well. So because investors also like they want to build confidence and have trust, like actually this story that is pictured in sometimes the media when like founders rock up and they do this super charismatic convincing pitch and the investors are like wow here's a billion dollars like it's not how it works <laughs> investors also humans right and they want to have relationships and work with people they trust and invest in things that they know and I mean, that's also a big part of their job so you can't really just rock up to a new investor and be like hey like give me your money and they'd be like yeah i'll give you my money like it's, it doesn't work like that. So that's another thing that I do that I think helps. Amazing. And there you have it. Part one of my conversation with Nelly. Here's a couple key takeaways about fundraising that I got from this conversation. Number one, raise twice as much as you think you need and assume that it will run out twice as fast as you think it would. Number two, Work hard to get lucky. Nellie was able to close her first million dollar check because yes, she got lucky, but she got lucky because she worked so damn hard and smoked to hundreds and hundreds of people before she found this investor. Number three, the trick to networking, be the host of an event rather than a passive participant. This way you'll be known and also have a reason to speak to all of the panelists and the guests. Number four, when you're trying to figure out your company's valuation at this early stage, consider how much of the company you're willing to give away in exchange for the amount of capital that you're looking for. Number five, when it comes to pre-series A funding, investors are usually investing in the founder and in their values. It's not until you get to series A where it's a lot more about numbers and how much is needed to make the company grow. Number six, for Nelly, she believes it's easier to raise money before you build a minimum viable product since there's usually less questions from the investors and it's all about selling your credibility and the dream. Number seven, when it comes to these investor meetings, be prepared, composed, and confident when answering questions. Show that you've thought about the question they've posed. And if you don't know, just be honest and tell them you will figure that out and get back to them. Number eight, build relationships with investors before you're even thinking about fundraising. This way, when the time comes for you to raise funds, both parties are already familiar with each other. And all it comes down to is figuring out how much money is needed and at what sort of valuation. For Nelly, she met the investor that led her Series A funding two years prior to the fundraising stage, who chose not to invest in the pre-seed stage because they were not confident at the idea at that point. But they kept in contact, and they chose to invest the second time around. And lastly, remember that investors are also human. They want relationships with the founders as well. All right, and that's all for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Control-Alt-Career. Remember to come back next week to check out part two of my conversation with Nelly, where we go deep into her career journey and how she went about building this education startup, Tiger Hall. And if you like this episode, 
I'd really love it if you shared it with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. And as always, if you're interested in career coaching, feel free to reach out to me. And you can find the links to my social media platform in the show notes to today's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Thank you.